Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Hey there. Good to see you, Mr. Butler. Yes, sir. Happy On Friday. Lovely Friday. So I we guess had we had a guest. A, we did. We we, <laughs> we have a guest. He was here. <laughs> we definitely have a guest. He was had here. A, lost him. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he'll be back on. Uh, obviously, John Aikman works with uh, with Resolve in the resolution portion of the business, which is focused on some of the opportunities in the ESG space. And uh, I guess in John's absence for the moment, we can we can just warn everybody that we'll be having a, a nice, wild, wide-ranging conversation on all kinds of topics and that uh, this isn't investment advice, but rather a pursuit of some uh, education and entertainment with respect to the investment domain. Um, what are we covering today, Mike? What is the, what's the theme? Well, I, I, you know, I think that, that um, in, in the ESG space, um, I was certainly someone who has struggled with, you know, wh- what ESG is, what it stands for. Um, you know, is it all just sort of posturing and uh, come, a- come around a long way and understanding that it's a complex space actually. And um, it spans more than, you know, within environmental or social or governance, <laughs> there are a number of different uh, things that, that happen or criteria to, to investigate and talk about and things that have sort of fascinated me are, um, you know, the idea of uh, peace, justice, and, you know, sort of strong institutions and, um, uh, you know, uh, the idea of uh, reduced inequalities in, you know, something like litigation funding 
um, are, are very interesting sort of topics or, or things, items that are coming out of this greater ESG uh, landscape. You know, I, I think there's a, um, you know, a bit of a focus on the neat new thing, right? Whether that be solar or, you know, uh, battery uh, technology and, you know, they're, they're kind of the shiny new thing that might solve the problem in the long term. But we've also got a traditional industry for which most of the planet still runs on that's carbon based. And, and so what are the incremental improvements that can be made there? And, you know, do you just abandon funding in that area, which we're seeing in, in uh, some of these areas where um, I think BP said they're not investing in hydrocarbons anymore. So where does that leave the world that, you know, is so sort of based on that hydrocarbon system and, and the delivery mechanisms and systems that are in place and have been in place for 100 years to deliver energy to a global economy? It's funny because um, it seems like, you know, for once, policy is running ahead of technology, right? I mean, right. We, we typically, because of the accelerating nature of technology and its complexity, um, lawmakers struggle to keep up with the, um, you know, creating laws that are consistent with the with the norms and the workflows and the and the behaviors of um, of citizenry, right? In this case, you have a global environmental social governments governance movement that is sort of fumbling towards objectives that are. Um, moving a little bit away, more away from uh, shareholder yield maximization and toward more of a protection of the commons type um, joint objective for economic productivity. And in this case, the governance is anticipating technology, but I guess I think in some ways we've seen that it's anticipating the adoption or scaling of tech at a more rapid pace than has actually been realized. And so now you get into these situations, as you alluded to, where um, the, the boards of major institutions, like, for example, the University of Toronto Endowment, which is, which is small in the grand scheme of things, but I think is, is um, illustrative of the direction of, of large institutions in general. And we have seen announcements from a variety of much larger institutions over the last couple of years, but they've just said they are divesting of all carbon-based energy equity investments, right? Right. Um, and and Notre, so Notre Dame did that several years ago too. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm sure there's dozens of other examples that have that have slipped yep. under our radar, right? And uh, and much more to come, right? The tsunami is just building. So obviously, there's a clear, there's a dream to move away from carbon-based fuels and the CO2 and methane and, and other contaminants that are maybe contributing to anthropomorphic climate change. And of course, you know, we're, for, we're focusing on climate, but there's, a, there's obviously social and governance objectives as well. But these policies are running ahead of the scale of the tech in order to, to build in substitution for the existing infrastructure and, um, and energy sources. And so, you know, that may be explaining what we're observing in a lot of the um, commodity curves, right? Not just yeah. a major explosion in prices higher, but also major um, shifts in the curves of these commodities that are suggestive of the fact that that the industry doesn't believe that new production is coming online to satisfy demand anytime soon, right? 
Um, John, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, welcome, John. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> so we were just we were just uh, gi giving sort of the general lay of the land a little bit, and um, uh, you know some thoughts on how uh, the the, cons the the sort of landscape from an emotional standpoint is changing more quickly than maybe the development in tech and the potential for the transition away from carbon-based fuels in this case we were talking about. And, um, but obviously, uh, you know, ESG is so much more than that. And, um, maybe why don't you, um, uh, why don't you give us a little background about yourself and, uh, who you are and, uh, your sort of expertise in this field sure. and then, um, sort of give us a lay of the land, if you will. Uh, you've got that, uh, colorful sort of chart that lays out a much broader, a landscape with respect to the the sort of responsible investing, if you will, beyond just ESG, and uh, maybe maybe start that and set the table for us. Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. And I, um, my background started off in kind of law and investment banking, uh, working for some of the major firms, the bulge bracket firms in London. And uh, after that, I uh, went to work in kind of academia a little bit. I've worked, uh, was a fact, I'm a faculty member at the University of Toronto and at Queen's University. And I teach in a variety of different areas that involve finance and technology, as well as impact investments. And, uh, and ESG is a big focus. Um, you know, mo most recently, uh, really been involved deeply in uh, alternative investments and ESG investing in general uh, with uh, with resolution. So uh, kind of a long story background. Uh, originally, my my experience was in uh, my education experience was in science, uh, you know, quantitative aspects of it from physics to math, as well as philosophy. And so I find that there's a, an interesting juxtaposition between the things that are going on right now in terms of the core finance and making sure that things make sense from a financial perspective. And then on the other side, looking at these kind of larger societal goals that we're trying to achieve. Um, so that's kind of my background. I've been teaching for about 10 years, uh, 12 years or so. And I, uh, I wrote a book on the financial crisis um, back in the day for Bloomberg about the fallout from Lehman Brothers, which was really about a really interconnected world and and some actually, there are some parallels between ESG and some of the challenges that we faced before um, that maybe we can talk about later. But uh, with that, uh, that's, that's kind of my background and how I come at it is I, I think that ESG matters. I think it's really important to solve some of these big problems. It, they are they're huge problems. Uh, they are technology-based and sometimes they're business case-based um, until people kind of put their heads to work and uh, and shift their thinking from you know from things being waste to potentially things being biofuel, um, that that's the type of thing that uh, uh, you have to you have to worry about and you have to close some of the loopholes that people have been exploiting, um, like what what major corporations and even nations have been doing to the oceans is is absolutely tragic because it, you fall off a cliff in no man's land of legal liability for things that you dump in the ocean. And now we know that the ocean is one of the most important areas for us to consider when we're thinking about life on Earth and uh, what, what this climate change means uh, for the future. So there are a whole host of issues um, 
related to to that. I guess I've answered. I wonder if I'm going to share. I'm going to share that um, sort of 17 different uh, parts of um, uh, sort of the ESG landscape, and maybe you can elaborate on some of those to set the table a little bit. Sure. I mean, the broad perspective of ESG, it's environmental, social, and governance. And a lot of people think that the real focus to date has been on E, uh, environment. And the problem is there, uh, clearly, and it's definable. And people define it as carbon emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, to some extent, that's a really narrow view of what ESG is, because you have what are known, these are known as the 17 SDGs or social, uh, you know, the sustainable development goals uh, put up by the United Nations. And, and now you have a lot of work at a government level and an intra intranational government level trying to bring people to to tackle some of these specific problems. But there's a broad range of different things to think about and things that you can focus on uh, and, the, and the SDGs and all the colors there uh, really really speak to that that uh, there there are there are a variety of different areas that are interconnected and and also uh, very very diverse so you can be investing in children's education or you could be reducing you know the carbon footprint of a concrete company or you know, investing in social justice, or looking at issues of work like uh, life below water. Some of these areas that are you know, you know, they're interconnected in a kind of broad sense, but hard hard to tackle uh, one by one. So that's though these are that. these are really important goals to think about, and they're setting targets based upon based upon these goals of what we want to achieve. I think it's helpful if you will, if you wouldn't mind, because this it's not like this idea of I'm going to sort of throw it all under the idea of, of responsible investing. Um, I don't know why, but let's just let's just use that. But I think it's useful to sort of almost spell out a bit of a term sheet, right? Because what is the difference between ESG and SRI and impact investing? Just as an example, um, are they different things? Are they mutually reinforcing? Like, how should people think about that? That it's a really good question of of what is what is ESG, and you have kind of uh, different definitions in the United States and in Europe and internationally. So you really need to know what people are talking about. The base level where everyone's kind of a responsible investor today is we've recognized that there are certain risks associated with things like climate change, or not addressing some of these. So a responsible investor will say. There are risks associated with not addressing ESG. The hotel I invest in may be underwater in you know, 10, 20 years, so I need to take this to heart. Then there's like socially responsible investments kind of moving up the chain saying, look, there's risk, but there's also opportunities, and I want to take advantage of some of these opportunities as well. Impact investments is a very complicated area where you're shifting further along, and you're starting to say, not only do I want to make money? Don't, not only do I think that there are risks and opportunities, but I actually want to solve a, a, like a tangible problem. And, you know, you, you'd say, well, what, what it, it could be something as simple as saying, hey, I want, you know, the, the amount of plastics that I pull out of this particular river to, you know, I want to count that. I, I want to have a, a turbine and I want to use it for that. And I'm going to measure, I'm going to weigh the plastic and I'm going to tell you that I pulled 
50 tons or you know hopefully more out of that river right uh, and then on the other side there are things like um, really innovative social issues to address like in the United States you have you have a huge problem with over criminalization and so there are there are minorities and there are you know populations sociodemographic populations poor people uneducated people who typically wind up in the criminal justice system there are catastrophic numbers on on the actual impact of whether you get bail or not if you don't get bail you are likely to plead guilty that much much more likely to get uh, plead guilty it, it, and so it's one of these key considerations 70% of the people in prisons, according to the statistics I've looked at and the, and the fund manager that I've talked to who focuses on this, 70% of those people that are incarcerated are incarcerated not because they committed a crime, but because they committed a technical breach. They were late for court. They missed a meeting with their parole officer or someone they had to check in. So they try and solve this problem by saying, look, the thing that we're going to measure as impact investors is we're going to measure how many people do we help get bail. And so what did they invest in? They invest in a, in a technology that helps remind people to go to their court appointments or to go different places. And believe it or not, it's, it's just that simple. Oh, no. they're, they're, sometimes yeah. the people that are there are not functioning very well. Like it's like turning to a heroin addict and saying, hey, make sure you show up on Tuesday at four, right? Like they have other things going on in their lives. You're not, you're penalizing them the kind of like not because of any sort of crime, but because of the problem that they're kind of suffering through. So there are interesting challenges where they're trying to solve things like that. And that's radically different from saying, hey, how, what, what, what was the carbon footprint? How much did you pull out of the, uh, you know, this this carbon sequestration plant or you know, so is esg investing sort of the umbrella category for all of those um different objectives or is esg something specific on its own right that's distinct uh, from the other categories that you just you just described i i think that that's the umbrella the umbrella is to say i'm an esg investor and then you really have to dig down and say what do you mean by that and are, are you just trying to avoid risks like Hey, we think the oil's going to be, you know, uh, uh, these oil fields. Many institutional investors. Part of part of the thing, one of the things I do is I sit on a pension endowment. Very enlightening to think about adding ESG as a policy to an investment portfolio. More and more institutional investors are doing that, and they don't all agree on what that means, right? They don't. They don't agree. They say we have an ESG policy, and you'll have to look at it because some of them are saying we have to divest from any sort of bad investments. And others are saying, we have to consider it as a risk, or not only is it a risk, we need to look for opportunities in this space or things like that. So you really have to look at it. And when you, when you think about these kind of investments, the interesting thing is that if you start to move from kind of just risks and opportunities, and then into, I wanna make a real difference, like an impact, then you can kind of turn, turn the corner. And then all of a sudden, quite quickly, you're, you're no longer focusing on economic results uh, because you've taken you, you, you're really just trying to solve this specific problem and then at that point you're quite close to charity and the work that charities do right just saying I want to allocate to solve this homelessness problem well see this is where I think definitions get tangled up because 
I think so much of this gets resolved through an acknowledgement of a mismatch in time horizons from an investment uh, perspective, right? So, I mean, so, so many of the problems that ESG investing is trying to solve come down to externalities that result from companies making decisions on uh, based on project timelines that are measured in you know the term of a, of the current CEO or the the term of current management so that current management is able to to realize a payout or payoff on these investments during their tenure and realize the you know the the benefit of the economic benefit from short-term shareholder value maximization right whereas in reality if if every company were accounting for this the environmental social well governance is, is slightly different but the environmental and or social cost of these sort of short-term investment goals um, and ignoring the potential long-term implications, um, then we we wouldn't be having these same same types of problems, right? Because they would be these the long-term ramifications would be explicitly built into the economic models. And so, you know, from that perspective, you don't need to think about ESG as running explicitly counter to economic objectives. It's just accounting for economic costs and opportunities that are that are outside the typical investment horizon of the company. I think is that's it, fair. It, yeah. yeah, is it also, you know, sort of a mispricing of, of the underlying asset not reflecting the environmental burden? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because the companies have not historically been held accountable for the externalities that they that they manifest, right? So mm -hmm. regulation that enforces that type of accountability is obviously another um, another way to go. Because the challenge is, it's not just management; it's also investors have time horizons that are too short to care about the types of problems that this short-sightedness creates, right? And yep. so if you don't have a shareholder, if there are no private stakeholders that are incentivized economically to take these the right steps to account for long-term externalities, then they have to be taken by, by regulation and government intervention, right? Mm -hmm. Well, just, just a simple example. I mean, you can run a business where you, you, know, you have a lot of garbage and you take that garbage and then you dump it in the ocean and you don't pay for it and you have a competitive advantage because mm -hmm. if you can, you know, there are many countries that do just that, they just dump it in the ocean. So uh, it's, it's, it's the goal too that's changing. And I think that you're right to think of it as um, questioning what are the rules. And right now the rules are really nebulous to some extent because they all kind of fit under this umbrella of uh, your ESG or if you're very, people get very focused on impact and what impact you're going to have. If you're claiming an impact, that's a serious claim and you have to kind of have external validation for your claim. <clears throat> but um, 
Yeah, I mean, really right now, this is all being driven by the, the United Nations principles of responsible investing, recognizing that you, you can't have kind of unrestrained capitalism that doesn't take these externalities into, into consideration. We have, you know, we have an island of plastic floating in the Pacific that is the size of Texas mm-hmm. as a result of the legal loophole that doesn't hold people accountable for dumping in that way. So people mm-hmm. have been taking advantage of it, and they still do. Now, the only thing that could kind of deal with that is kind of an international treaty on 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 water rights and who who owns that water. We've agreed that international waters, and you, and you can imagine when those when they were written up, no ever no one ever anticipated that we were going to be utilizing super tankers to transport goods all over the world. But when that becomes your primary means of trade, uh, you know, whether that's, whether that's super tankers or you've got, you know, your, your cargo from China transporting wherever or from the United States, it's really to say, maybe you really need to rethink the, the legal framework that you have today. The UNPRIs is really to say, you know, there are only specific things that they require you to do. And typically, people think that the focus is on the E of ESG. Clearly, the thing that scares most people is the E, like an unsustainable, uh, you know, planet, a, a dead ocean scares people. But the focus to date has been on G. It's been on sign up and report. And so <clears throat> sometimes... These things are, are, in general, there's a lot of goodwill that goes into these things. These are good. This is a better planet when we try and solve some of these problems. However, uh, other, you know, actors are gaming the system and using this as a sword and a, rather than a shield to protect things, right? They're, they're using it as a competitive advantage. So sometimes the question is who, who's most green? And it's this game that and it sometimes comes down to that, that, that in a bad way, it comes down to saying, are you doing greenscaping? Are you just trying to look green? And so you, to your point, you're right that you have a lot of CEOs coming forward and saying, hey, I am, uh, we are carbon neutral or our target is to be carbon neutral. But the truth is they don't really see a way through current technology or innovation to really get there, they're just making. It. And if look, if they don't, if they don't get there, it's 15 years away. They retire and say, "Oops, sorry, missed it." But, um, but in a way, this is these bigger problems aren't just about creating good businesses for the future. They aren't just about going forward. They actually have to solve some of these problems. Like the emissions have to be um, to be dealt with in some ways. How, how do we deal with? the sort of the, the temporal unfairness of developing nations of today versus our developing nation of yesterday where you know the the US the western sort of more developed civilizations polluted heavily took advantage of the opportunity to um, create an industrialization that had um, you know sort of less uh, burden and, and now we're saying to these developing uh, countries in the world, oh, well, yeah, you can't do that. And, um, and you have to bear the cost, the extra cost, these extra externalities on your much less developed, much less wealthy society. So how do we deal with that? Is it, is it 
Oh, let me just, like, how do we deal with that? Well, I mean, they just, they just tried to, they tried to raise a, a fund to assist developed developing nations. Right. So, and like, I think Canada is spearheading this. Right. And they were, I think they came in like at less than 10% of their goals. Right. So the West wants the, the East to be more accountable but we're not willing to incentivize it, apparently. Well, Anyways, and it John, should be on yeah. our dime, right? If we're the ones Agreed. sitting here as a richer society that can deal with these externalities, it would seem to me anyway that we should be not only telling Indonesia or, you know, I don't mean to pick on any individual, <laughs> these developing countries that have less wealth and ha- and are in the process of coming through that um, that growth phase and industrialization and coming from third world to second world to first world, it's probably on the developed nations to subsidize that in some way, shape or form. But I, I don't know. I put it back to you guys for your thoughts. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Uh, it is, how do you make poor nations follow these best in class rules and they're not following them and they have well, no intention of following? Them. Well, they can't. I mean, it's great to set rules if you can't. It's it's sort of like the probation, the guy who's got, you know, ADD and has never been treated and doesn't show up for, you know, his his appointments. It's it's kind of not fair that he's in prison for for that. It's kind of not fair that we're going to suggest that these poor nations have to follow these rules. And so what happens? They have more starvation. They have a lower quality of living. Like, what do we do? I mean, that's the reality. If, if we set the standard, the, the question will be whether we set – right now we have like a Delaware effect, right, which is really the lowest, lowest cost producer wins. And no matter what you do to the environment, that's okay. It, mm-hmm. You have to move towards a California effect where you set a standard by which you say you don't follow it. it we, don't, we don't buy it, right? Like you don't, you don't have ethical you know, operations. We don't, we don't buy from you. Um, the key consideration here, even though I think you're absolutely right that there's this inherent unfairness, there's also this challenge of China being by far the largest emitter. Now we know that. So, but China's almost three times what the U.S. is in terms of emissions. So it really is the balance to navigate is you can get Europe and the U.S. and Canada on board. Uh, you still have a very small percentage of the world. You get China to deal with it, and that's 27% of the emissions globally, which is the bulk of it. And and they're going to wow. say, look, we we've manufactured and we've done well because we didn't follow any of these rules. So now you want to you want to do that? You want to put these strings on us? And the question will be: Is it a competitive inhibition, or is this? Uh, mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. can be both an inhibition, and, and you'll you'll just have to spend money to deal with some of these problems. Or, or is this a new thing that's going to lead to lots of innovations that are, that are really great for the world? Like that we can make a switch to kind of smarter power, smarter energy, smarter technologies in that way. At, at the same time, we need to put it in the framework of recognizing that there's the, the, there are these huge trends happening, like in terms of money printing by many of the developed nations nations all around the world there's been an you know almost catastrophic amount of money printed leading to inflation and different challenges you know just with the united states about about almost 80 percent of all the money all the m1 that they've produced you know ever 
was produced in the last year since the pandemic. So you've seen a rise from their $4 trillion level to close to $20 trillion. Um, and then when you think about it, that during the pandemic, you had developing nations, there was an unprecedented need for money from the pandemic to deal with this. So you had the, the, the IMF had never had so many requests for funds. So there was literally over 150 nations that came to the IMF and said, I need emergency financing. And the IMF really said no uh, to a lot of them because the IMF didn't know that if it's going to have the money to do that. And effectively, the IMF is the United States. And the, and the United States was hit so hard by the pandemic that it, it was really challenging. And the United States was the one that was printing all of this money and, and dealing with these kind of astronomically low interest rates going forward. And then if you compound that, so you, there's this huge rise in debt. There are these huge economic challenges. And then you think about the technologies that do exist right now. And many of the technologies that we rely on are, are kind of, in some ways, they're catastrophic to traditional jobs. Um, if you think about all the people that, you know, have been replaced by an iPad, like all of the kind of, there's a, there's a huge uh, challenge with dealing with new technology coming in. And you may say, oh, look, it's green, right? Electric vehicles are green. Isn't it great? Said, well, but, but think about the fact that 20 million people have as a major part of their uh, job description is driving. And, if you, and, and, and Tesla has no, you know, they've already stated, look, millions of our cars in the near future will be automated. You know, they're going to be entirely automated. And, and so the question will be, uh, what do you do with all, all these people that suddenly are really struggling in a fundamental way to, to just find break, decent work? And, and, and are we in a world where reasonable economic growth is really possible without, you know, looking for some of the traditional sources like the, the things that made even Canada, you know, wealthy? which was this huge supply of oil and all these natural resources that we have. If we were suddenly saying that gold's bad and you can't do it because of the poisons and, and you, can't, you can't touch the tar sands because of, of carbon, then we may find that uh, there is a real economic price to pay for uh, going green. So I want to, um, we're, we're, we're a little over 30 minutes in, so I want to make sure we get to sort of the bread and butter of what you're working on at the moment, right? So um, tell us a little bit about the um, strategy that you are, um, that you're working on. And so, you know, ESG in a private credit context, um, how to deal with inflation. What are the things you are focused on? What is the sort of niche value prop of this strategy that you're launching right well you know more and more people need um need an alternative to traditional bonds institutional investors and private individuals need to need to make real returns and if you look at the returns of bonds on a real basis they're pretty abysmal and it's pretty pretty value destroying if we have five percent inflation and bonds are you know, investment grade bonds are two or three percent. If you're lucky, uh, you know you're you're still net losing. So private debt is a really important and an interesting area. There are inefficiencies in that market because we haven't we we have kind of an inefficient allocation of capital traditionally. Um, 
in North America that smaller entities get far less, small and medium-sized entities get far less, uh, you know, uh, capital than they they probably should receive, and it's because they're kind of, they're private and they're difficult to access. So the public, large publics get tons, private and smaller get vastly less. And it costs, it costs and takes, uh, is a challenge to kind of access some of these markets. But there's a significant uh, premium in this market because, because, the, because it is difficult to tap. So I'm focusing on pr alternative credit in, in the private markets and focusing on some of these ESG areas. There are certain areas where there are, you know, there are clear mispricings. They have, uh, you know, they have abandoned certain parties uh, because they believe that they're, they're, they may be deemed bad or not good ESG. But uh, we, we can focus on ESG in, in one of two different ways. You can either just say, look, let's dump all your money into Tesla and just hope that EV works out. Or you can, you can I, I think that sometimes it makes sense to think about it in a different way and think about it not as being a best in class investor, but how do you help these firms get up to the next level? How do you help them uh, become more profitable? And you can build in a couple of different features into the private debt, one of which is protection for, for inflation. And... Um, and the other aspect is you can make tangible benefits for them if they do hit certain ESG targets. And some, so sometimes all they need to do is kind of make a plan to shift in that direction. And, and to, to me, the really important value proposition is not to just say, hey, everybody, let's forget all other, all other sectors and let's just focus on this one that happens to look good today. But let's try and make all these different traditional sectors better. And, that, and if we can turn the dial on some of these major areas, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really significant advance too. So it, I think it's both a really interesting investment opportunity um, to invest in some of these areas that are neglected. Uh, and uh, there is a significant premium for investors. So investors who are thinking about how, what sort of alternative, what, what's my alternative to bonds? If I look at bonds and I'm, you know, today going to get 1% and I know inflation is five, then why, why would you ever invest? Why would you, why wouldn't you just throw your money out the window? Because on a real basis, that's, that's not, I, 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 I mean, when someone like Bill Gross refers to U.S. treasuries as trash, you know, we have a big problem. We are we're at, we already we've on we've been on a forty year ride down, and now it's going up. So the people need to think carefully about what areas will give them inflation protection because it's going to be a key consideration going forward. And there are reasons why the traditional areas haven't kind of moved in the way we would think, like the you know the traditional commod some commodities have some commodities have not. Gold has typically not kind of provided the inflation hedge that we would have we would have thought in a, in a kind of a hyperinflationary kind of money printing scenario. That would be uh, one that that would be a traditional, um, you know, staple of any sort of portfolio if you were worried about inflation. But it but it really hasn't shown that trajectory, and I think that that may be because the technology has changed as well, and that people are using alternatives to gold for their 
for their inflation hedges. Like cryptocurrencies are a good example. Cryptocurrencies have kept up with the money printing and even more, uh, whereas some of the other more traditional asset classes have not. So when I look at the market and I see that equities look very, very challenging, very high valuations, bonds are at incredibly low yields and pose a lot of risk. And then I think, you know, the tradition, some of the traditional uh, alternatives in that way uh, seem to seem to be subject to a secular change away from them. That I think that there are ways that you can navigate this kind of strange market and do well. But I think people have to take uh, inflation seriously. It's, we, we've been asleep to it for a really long time because it's been so low and because there has been really, you know, a, a loose economic policy. But now we see the signaling of a couple of different challenges, which are a more hawkish approach to rates for obvious reasons related to inflation. But, um, but then also this kind of regulation that's going to force people at a difficult time to make tough economic decisions for ESG purposes. So, um, and how, how do you think, how do you think that balance is going to play? Cause the, a lot of the, in the more traditional industries that you're talking about, whether those be uh, energy related, uh, gold related, copper related, um, there's going to be this uh, push and pull right now. Money's leaving the system. Uh, potentially um, they are not <laughs> investing in new projects to continue production levels, which probably leads to higher prices, which is good potentially um, from the profit perspective. And then, so, so they've got to make some advancements in the way they do things, enhance the way their, their government governance works and environmental considerations. So there's going to be a drawdown on the profitability profitability of the business because of that, maybe potentially I'm assuming there would be. At yeah. the same time, so we're providing funding. We'd like a return uh, because production is shrinking uh, because everyone's moving away from it. Uh, I think I think there's some magic in there. It's just a matter of walking that tightrope between the increases in potential costs and the potential for returns, and then bringing that back to the investor's real rate of returns. Gosh, that that's one of the places where if you look through the '70s when we had a stagflationary environment where growth was choked off by the growth in, in you know, some of the, the resource uh, costs, that, that's a great place to get some real returns vis-a-vis -vis that bond portfolio or even stock portfolio. So I know there's a lot there, but I swing it back over to you to maybe comment on how, how you walk that path between those two dynamics. Well, you're right. I mean, that... I guess from a trading perspective or investments perspective, I guess it reminds me of something that Mark Lazarus, I, I talked to, he said, anytime people make investments for non-economic reasons, there is a trading opportunity. Anytime. Right. People are going to systematically make non-economic decisions. So there's a, there, we're going to create a bubble in certain what are deemed to be popular ESG areas, without question. Governments are going to mandate it. If a government has a so think about the policy here. The the policy is, yeah, we got to do this good ESG stuff, so we're going to cut down on the cost of capital for these firms that are going to do that, and we're going to punish the firms with higher cost of capital and higher taxes and different things for the firms that are not. Sounds like a good idea. 
but then you, if you kind of go back in history and you look at when they tried to do things like this before, um, you can see that, you know, we, you need to remember that the financial crisis uh, was driven by the U.S. home price crisis, which was really driven by the fact that subprime was promoted and that the biggest buyers of subprime at the end of the day happened to be Fannie and Freddie Mac and that that you had government institutions that were fostering these investment decisions and supporting them economically. So Barney Frank, the author of the Dodd-Frank Act, was on the record prior to the crisis saying, if we are going to, if we are going to put people, if we are going to make a mistake in, you know, putting people in homes or not putting them in homes, we are going to put people in homes who can't afford them rather than not giving them a home at all. So they financed subprime because subprime met the government policy objective. And that allowed so much financial engineering and other things to go to take place because they thought they were solving a specific problem. What, what problem did they really think they were solving? Home ownership, the tax base in the United States, this huge problem of, they knew that, look, if you, if you have people in a certain area with that own their homes, your tax rate goes, you know, your tax base goes up, your unemployment rate goes down, your incarceration rate goes down. There are all these positive effects that, that they want to get at. And so that led them to support, support this idea of, hey, subprime is not a bad idea because we're giving people a chance. You know, when it metastasizes through the entire system, you can see that you can develop an aberration with very good intentions. So the good intentions may be in the way that they think of ESG, and they're going to create bubbles in certain areas without question, because there just is more capital chasing certain areas uh, than there are opportunities right now. And then if you can find your way to, you know, transitioning and, and calling yourself kind of an ESG opportunity in a legitimate way, then you you have this ability to raise capital at a lot lower level. And then if you and then if people are willing to give you a premium on the equity side, then think about it. It's a perfect world. Your whack goes down, your returns go up, you look great. And yet what's really happened, you've probably deprived a lot of good business, good traditional businesses, uh, and, cr and created a lot of hurdles for them um, that maybe you'll regret later because you're going to, you're going to start financing and finding new opportunities in, in earlier stage companies, in innovations and things like that. And you're going to have to be ready not to think of it like a venture capital investor because you're going to have to think of it long-term like true kind of developing infrastructure and you're going to have to allow for mistakes. And, and that, that always is a painful process. There's, there's never been a time when in, investing in early stage companies has been a certainty. There are just a whole host of things that go wrong with that. And right now we're dealing with a bunch of new opportunities, some of which are great and very interesting. Others are, you know, are not going to work. And, uh, and if you just want to go around with a hammer and hit everything that looks like a nail that has an ESG tag on it, then I think you're going to create these, these opportunities for, for trading. So I would see it as, hey, while this wave goes on, I think that you do have to invest somewhat in some of these opportunities. But there are going to be some neglected, high-value companies that can not, not compete on a best-in-class basis, but if I can take a cement company or a steel company 
and turn the dial slightly, I will likely have made a much more significant impact than I would if I thought I'm only going to invest in what I deem to be, oh, sustainable cities or you know something that is a kind of a more nebulous uh, link to these kind of overarching goals. So I think there I think there are going to be opportunities on both sides, and I think you're gonna we're gonna have to read the tea leaves as we go forward to make sure that we understand exactly what's happening. And the good thing is that there's a ton of new data that that helps you manage kind of lar large portfolios of sometimes smaller investments, typically in the past would have been almost impossible. Now we can do that and we can do that really efficiently, so, which creates this interesting opportunity um, in, uh, in ESG and private debt. So that's, so that's, the, my, that's my thinking. What are the qualities, um, the characteristics within the ESG framework that investors might want to hone in on as the strongest predictors of future outperformance. Um, I don't know if you've done it, a, a lot of work on that in the equity space, but are there, if you have, we'd love to hear that. But even in the, in the debt space, what are some features um, or qualities that investors might want to really dig into as being the best indicators of future economic growth or, or future performance? Uh, well, I, I think sometimes for, for, for things like that, it goes back to the same, uh, um, the same area. I, I would think that there are certain, you know, there are certain regions that are good. There are certain sectors that are good to consider uh, that they're like technology in general is a good sector. Uh, there, if you see that there are certain sectors that are outperforming inflation, uh, obviously that those are it's it's much easier to just go along with those high-performing sectors. That we're going to see that there are massive investments in things like <clears throat> there have already been massive investments in things like windmills and solar. Uh, we're going to see some of the alternatives where the, to build it out uh, because as as you alluded to before, there's a there's a looming problem that we're not there in terms of technology uh, to meet our energy needs for the future, and we're going to need other alternatives. And, and I, can, I would imagine that you, people are going to suddenly realize that we've made certain mistakes in, in the way we have, uh, we have looked at the, you know, the future of ESG, meaning I think you need nuclear. Uh, I think that you're going to find that some of these features are, are you're just not going to get there. You're not, and you're not going to get off oil either. Uh, oil is still going to uh, exist. The question will be about uh, sequestration, about, about other things that, in fact, um, can help um, solve some of these bigger problems. If you looked at, like, and you may find that there are some strange opportunities that have a big impact. Um, there, there are things that there, there's a, you know, the, the example is it's when the mindset changes from things that are weight are waste or garbage or of no value to things that have great value. And that happens sometimes and it happens with the implementation of technology. Uh, so who like name, name one company that lists data on their balance sheet as an asset. 
and they they don't right it's what we it's a reason why we know that google and facebook and apple and uh you know amazon they have huge data sets there are that are immensely valuable and yet they don't recognize them at all and the same sort of thing happened with biofuels right chicken farmers turkey farmers used to pay people to come and collect you know the waste product get it out of here right and then they would take the truck they'd have waste on the side then they'd pick it up they'd drive away they'd peel that off and say biofuel and then they'd sell it to someone right <laughs> and they, that, well, that was, got, yeah <laughs> that, was, that was what they did valid, valid is power right taking the flare gas sure. available in the in the oil oil and gas regions and and you know producing that into the various con contents, but also converting it on site to electrons. And there's some mining of cryptocurrencies going on with that. So that's so exactly right. Very interesting uh, potentiality there to take, like you say, take things that are waste and just turn them entirely from waste to a, to a profit center is uh, that's magnificent. Really? That that's, that's where the, I think there's some serious sauce. Yeah, that's if that if look if we viewed that island off, you know, in the Pacific, as an asset, if you could take that and turn it into something and sell it to someone, then they would be they that thing would be torn apart in like a year or less. We have the technology to do that. The problem is, where do you take it? Where do you store it? What do you do with it? And so you need innovations around things like that to to solve that specific problem. I think. And that, and that, yeah, that, like imagine like nuclear plants that used to think like the time between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. was waste, right? You needed to yeah. keep those reactors going. No one was using the, the power. So what are they doing now? They're doing smart things. They're starting to say, look, we have, we have a, we can pump water up a hill and we, we drop it down in high time. So we utilize this time to store energy. And then what do we have? Clean energy that just pours down, goes into the lake, it's not hot, no issue. Uh, so th those kind of innovations that are natural resources um, and just take a little bit of innovation and a little bit of infrastructure spend, those are the things that we should be really focusing on. Those are interesting opportunities. And there are more and more of those types of opportunities. So I see kind of, investments in that kind of infrastructure level, um, particularly, you know, in energy and others and in linking it to, to things like that are inflation hedged, like crypto is a very, very uh, appealing proposition for the foreseeable future. I think it, It's interesting. It's almost as though, uh, so we've talked about bubbles and how they form and whatnot, but bubbles in, in, in the investment paradigm serve a great service. Like they actually serve the point of massive technological advancement, but in a very sort of smattered way. And then we don't know what's going to work or how, what the implications are. But at the end of it, we've got this great, you know, sort of new infrastructure. The railway did that, you know, the, the laying of, of, of all the, of all the, the fiber optical cable and internet. We had no idea what the implication, maybe we need a massive ESG bubble in order to, uh, well, maybe we're in the middle of something like that, I don't know, in, in order to advance the technology sufficiently in ways that we don't know at the moment, as you were alluding to very early on in our discussion, Adam, um, to actually solve the problem. Maybe that's mm -hmm. the way finance serves its purpose, is there there is no way to avoid 
some sort of excess in order to solve the problem in in the intervening period. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right about that. It, any sort of investment in serious technology or serious capital expenditures to have good businesses is a good idea. All too often, government uh, projects are really kind of consumption-based investments in certain ways, which are which are terrible, obviously, because we end up in a worse place. We end up financed with debt, and we end up with a business that doesn't work, and there are no assets left to, to deal with or to distribute. So it's a, it's a kind of terrible scenario from that perspective. I think that an excellent example of what can happen, to your point, Mike, is really like the... Uh, the example of the, the history of refrigeration. The history of refrigeration is fascinating because you used to have this huge industry where guys with giant saws would go up to north, you know, northern yeah. lakes and cut them up. And that was, a, that was a huge employer. They cut up clean water, clean ice from these lakes in, you know, northeastern U.S. and even Canada, and they'd ship it all over. And that developed the cold storage. That allowed all sorts of new trade to happen. It was a big employer. And that went away like so quickly with the advent of refrigeration. And, you know, just that one development changed the world dramatically, changed all these employments, these, you know, these professions, these towns radically changed. So I think that that's, that's where we're at. We're going to need to be prepared for some of those significant things. And, and, and the great part of it is like, thank God that AI came up when it did and it's become developed and open. Like, thank God it was opened up to the world in a way because then we can solve different problems with that. We, you know, we can see much more into the data than we ever could before. So I think with tools like that, with, with infrastructure and transparency that comes from kind of the blockchain type uh, developments with huge developments in data, and the ability of you know us to have supercomputers to compute all this uh, information utilizing these tools, I think that we have a good chance of developing a lot of, of the solutions for tomorrow. So those are the kind of, if I were to think about where would I want to focus and what would I want to invest in, I think it's where those things kind of come together and uh, those would be interesting opportunities. But I, again, I think that you, you're going to have to kind of take a longer viewpoint on uh, on some of these as an investor. Like, I, d I don't think that you can think of it as a, a really liquid strategy and that you're going to need to be, you know, okay with, uh, you know, some challenges in, in uh, w with some of these investments. But, but they, but they hold a really great promise. And if they're, when they're government supported and if they can solve a real fight, you know, economic uh, need, you know, and they are efficient companies. Then, then they sh they should be incredibly attractive investments for the future. So, so allocators and and investors and boards should think about this more along the lines of maybe a a, a true private equity investment with that kind of time frame and capital calls. Is that would that yeah. be more? To my mind, I think you have to. I think that it's generally it's smart to extend your liquidity profile to meet your needs, whatever the institution you're working with, pension, endowment, charity, whatever it is. So looking at these alternatives really does make sense. Should you think of it as a longer-term investment? Absolutely. One of the things that I have done that was really enlightening and uh, and also very valuable was to work with a First Nation. 
on their goals. And First Nations uh, are thinking 150 years out. You know, that that is sometimes, you know, all too often pensions or endowments uh, think of things in terms of what are we going to do in five years or 10 years or what? how are we going to answer this quarter? How do we do this quarter? And the truth is that doesn't really matter because your liabilities are so far out. What you really want to achieve is so far out there that you really need to think about what you want to leave for the next generation, not what you want to leave next quarter. I mean, they're, they're not incentivized the next quarter. They just don't want to feel like they've made silly investments and be embarrassed by that. But, uh, but it's really uh, important for people to take a much longer viewpoint. So should they be looking, uh, you know, should you be, I think you should be investing in ESG and thinking about it as though if I were to put this away for 10 years or 20 years, where will, where will it be? Because we are just at the tipping point now of when this is coming in. And there are going to be a whole host of amazing things coming forward. This is going to be an important area you know, for our generation, this is the issue. The technology of our generation is AI and big data and the Internet of Things and robotics. But the goals, what we invest to achieve, I think will have a lot to do with ESG. And that's why I think it's important to kind of be an early player rather than late. Because if you're late, I think you are going to get, you know, I'd rather be an early investor where it's undervalued rather than, uh, you know, rather than a... Uh, late investor where I pay too much because I have to. So we're, I, I think we're going to have to, and I think we're going to find that there are all sorts of regulations and taxation that come up as a result uh, of these kind of policy measures, in part because they're poorly constructed right now and they're incomplete. Like they, they really are. They're not, they're, they're asking you to sign up to the UNPRI, but they're not really going to tell you what the targets are. You know, like, oh, sign up with us, agree to do it, and we'll let you know next, you know, in a couple of years what you actually have to do. Now, that's, that's a pretty that, – that is what they're asking people to do. And they're wow. actually asking them to pay for the, for the honor of being part of the PRI, right? So, so you can say, yeah, I, I, I'm a signatory, right? But that's, that's kind of uh, – to me, they – they have a real challenge because the overwhelming majority of focus on ESG has been on equities and equities that are ESG focused have done very well and will continue to do very well. And there will be more capital allocated because more and more people are just going to dump into uh, either funds or uh, ETFs that give them access to that, whatever they'd consider that to be. Um, but um, there are all these other areas that are going to pick up from an ESG perspective. The private equity, the private debt, infrastructure, you know, real assets, all of them are going to start to turn the dial in their own way. And that, that, so when I think of where I want to be as an investor, I would like to be earlier in that process with good companies that have, you know, have collateral and are smart enough to make that kind of transition going forward. Because I think that a good company that's operating well that can kind of twist the dial and start to do things a little bit better is sometimes better than this kind of pie in the sky company that, that is kind of a moonshot that just is telling you that they're going to, you know, they're going to solve the world problems. We want to make the world a better place. It's like a tagline for every startup. 
but you know rarely do they actually uh, you know they run out of gas before they get to the moon so it's it, I think that the real opportunity is finding these uh, these neglected gems that that can transform that can use kind of private equity private debt strategies to get to that next level and to be uh, you know really valuable companies future and that and that's your that's the reasoning for your orientation towards debt i mean debt would not help the moonshot company right they they're going to need the first leg of financing they're paying some financing rate on it but there's no potential that they're going to be able to meet those funding obligations other than the next round of round of financing down the road whereas yeah. these more more sort of gems in the rough as you say that might be slightly neglected are uh, good assets good operating companies that need to move the needle positively in the social responsible esg way and thus, in doing so, uh, might might incur lower funding rates in the future, might in, have some sort of technological advancement that improves <clears throat> the bottom line, and thus they can meet the funding requirements and even some maybe some portion of inflation hedge on those funding requirements in a private debt context. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that there, there, there is that opportunity. You're going to see inflation kick in. You you want your portfolio in general to have some inflation hedge, uh, and so this is a good opportunity because rates are so low and they're increasing. And private debt has the ability to invest on a on an inflation hedge basis. So that on a on either portfolio level or a loan by loan level level. So you can you get access to. Um, to kind of, I think what you really want as an investor, do you want to be inflation? It's no good to be investing in high-quality bonds that just consistently fail to hit inflation targets. That's and yeah, I, think I mean, obviously the the model for basically every credit or debt um, portfolio, you know, I, I have yet to see any of them that are you know that prioritize in inflation hedging. So. I think that's a really great rabbit hole for us to explore at, in more depth, right? So first of all, how do you incorporate inflation hedging into the actual private credit portfolio? But then how can you complement um, traditional private debt with other types of debt-like investments that are that have built-in inflation hedging characteristics? That, 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 that's, a, that's a great question, Adam. So there, there are different levels you can think about it as investment by investment and thinking about you know each each loan is a bespoke loan and can be inflation hedged that that you're making so each you know each uh brick in the wall can be in it partly inflation hedged from that perspective so wow. you embed you, you will you embed cpi into the terms of the loan and uh you can you know you, so you, you also effectively structure it like a like a treasury inflation protected security um, yeah. But instead of you know the treasury owing the the company will owe, yeah. and you'll adjust the principal um, by the by whatever happened to CPI, and then you know the the distributions then will will escalate as um, inflation picks up. Is that yeah. the general? That's the gen that's the general the general structure is just that to say yeah. you can do it uh, piece by piece. Uh, it's not to say that everything will be perfectly inflation hedged. It just should give you a, a bulk inflation hedge on the investment, mm -hmm. and that's uh, that's something to uh, to think about. Will be 
you know, how, how do you, how do you build that portfolio? You still want to do all the same sort of things that you do in a normal portfolio of geographic and sector diversification. And, uh, and then if you embed that in, in the kind of, uh, the financing that you give, you give these entities, then that, that's a, that's, you know, that's a, an, an important feature for the investment proposition, but it also makes sense from the, from the other side of the equation in private debt being that, they don't have uh, other opportunities, and typically they're going to have variable variable rate um, kind of interest in any event. And typically, uh, you know, they can in in areas that have high inflation, they are you know the typical company is adjusting their contracts to it to to deal with inflation as they go forward. Anyway, so you're just you're actually just spurring the company to do what they be, should be doing anyway. It's like it's, it's companies get lazy and think, oh, it's a contract. I just don't. I know inflation is up, but I just want to give you the same deal for certainty. But if they know that their cost of capital changes according to CPI, then it just makes them more. Holds their feet to the fire. Yeah, they're just you're just you're doing exactly what you should be doing. You should be monitoring the contracts. You know, we're monitoring the contracts that we lend to them at. They want to allocate for their different investments and they need to be thinking about inflation as well. So we want we want to invest in smart companies and smart companies that are on a high trajectory. Um will be will be are comfortable with that if you you know if you just want to really go for the biggest lowest rate then you're and you're a big public company um i i think that those big public companies are actually going to face significant inflation as well but um but if if it does have that kind of trickle down effect then then having a reasonable inflation hedge built into your contracts is not something bad for these companies. It's something that they just are going to have to deal with in their regular business going forward. Well, and if they have the ability in their business to adjust to the inflationary concerns, whatever their business be, um, it would give them an advantage in, in their terms because they would be able to embrace that. Right. It may not be an investment risk for them. Right. That, and it would, cha- it would change. Sorry. It would change yeah. to, your, to your point. Exactly right. If you think about, uh, you know, periods of hyperinflation, times like that, there were periods of time, like you go back to the, you know, Weimar Republic, where people were being paid twice a day because inflation was so high. I mean, if if in fact you hit strange scenarios like that, look, your your lenders can't be morons as you know, as well and just let you go with kind of so a low fixed rate. You know, you're dealing with that, and your and your clients are dealing with that too. So it's just about matching what you should be doing in any event. It's not it's not uh, it's not in any sense a bad thing. It's just to make them cognizant that hey, yeah, yeah you're going to have to look at your contracts, and no, you maybe maybe you shouldn't be signing up to these long term fixed contracts to 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 think about that. Um, that you really should be uh, maybe thinking that we are entering kind of a different different. Time, you know, time, a different time when inflation is an issue, where interest rates aren't just going down. We've hit the natural end point. You know, we're at the bottom of the ski hill. This is, we've just got to go back up from, from, from here. <laughs> so what are, some, um, what are some alternative investments that uh, are complementary to the sort of private credit portfolio that you're envisioning that also... Um, very directly tie into the ESG objectives um, and that, that, that complement the portfolio also from an inflation hedge perspective, do you think? Well, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great question. And the, 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 uh, some of them, like an example might be 
that you have certain types of kind of government mandated payouts or contractually agreed payouts. Certain things like if you think about um, the areas where, that are that are difficult to finance for one reason or another, uh, like litigation financing being an example of one. So, you, so what is that? Litigation financing is where um, someone you know, someone has maybe suffered an injury, they have a claim against their insurance company, and they need to borrow money against their current needs, right? So they don't want to lose their home, they want to, you know, keep their kids in school, they want to keep food on the table, they're disabled, and they don't have any income coming in. So the question would be, well, how do you how do you lend to someone like that? And traditional banking would say you have no you have no asset to lend against. I don't, I, you know, you the the thing that you can do is is look at it differently and say, hey, this claim that you have against this insurer has, you know, if we look at it statistically, ninety eight percent of these pay out, and in fact they pay significantly, and part of that is that. Um, you can view that as the asset or the collateral for this kind of loan subject to the the, the payment the settlement of this case uh, you have effectively a uh, you have a, a proxy for kind of an alternative credit type product the two features that make it interesting is that the that the payouts that they're going to be receiving are inflation adjusted and on the other side um, that that when someone goes to court and can't um, you know they can't pay for things they are in a very difficult situation and so judges and uh, governments have agreed look this is a good thing this is helping people get access to justice you've been injured they owe you and so oftentimes uh, not you know some some insurance companies are good some are bad some play this game of chicken where they try and grind you down into paste such that you're so you know you just want to go on with your life you want to you want to keep your home you're in financial distress no one you know no one's going to help you in your time of need you can come in and say look well we'll lend to you based upon this asset that you're going to get in the future and you don't have to worry about paying us now so. Judges have said that's that's good, and from and if you think about it from kind of uh, an SDG, the social, you know, sustainable development goals, it fits really in into kind of the idea of justice and reduced inequalities because these these kind of pains only happen to people in low income brackets that are are challenged or have you know have no uh, other assets. Now that they shouldn't be put in a worse position. Than someone who who has financial means, that you know, we, we, they're both victims. One of them kind of sits it out and just waits for the pro proper settlement. Pay me when you're going to pay me, and if they realize that sometimes this person doesn't have the ability to fight, then it just becomes a waiting game. Well, it's, it's such painful. an asymmetric well, battle, right? Yeah, like yeah. Um, you've got you've got this huge machinery on one side, the insurance company that has all this process. Everyone in the insurance company that's fighting on the insurance company side is getting a regular paycheck, right? They're made whole every every month. Yeah. The victim is having to fight this battle alone. They feel like they're up against Goliath and they're under-equipped, they're under-informed, there's an asymmetric information situation. Um, and so if you're if we're able to sort of first of all 
provide some slack in the form of, of an economic loan to that individual as they go through the process, and then take advantage of expertise and economies of scale by consolidating a portfolio of these um, victim loans together. So you've got, you know, you've got an organization that has many employees that are experts in, in fighting on behalf of victims and against uh, insurance companies to ensure fair payouts your likelihood is that you're going to get, you know, fairer payouts to all of the people involved. And Mm -hmm. while the victims are going through the process, they're not suffering and getting squeezed in the way that they would be if they were fighting this battle alone against this asymmetrically powerful Goliath. So it just seems like a, like a win-win. And it's not, it's not just, it's not just insurance companies and health claims, right? You've got all of the claims with respect to um, uh, terminations, Right, people are terminated unfairly uh, or unfairly, or think that there's something. So, so you're you undergo some sort of termination and have to think about, well, what am I going to do? Do I just take it and eat it and move on, or do I fight it? And that's something where you are burdened with the entire cost of that. You have a you have the the, the outcome of one, rather Absolutely. than than the insurance company has or the company that's going through the the the, the firing process has the opportunity of many. They're looking at that saying, hey, we're going to use the legal system as a sword, not a scale. And we're going to continually be at the very low end or the zero end of payouts. And we're just going to wait. 10 people we're going to let go. Uh, Six people are just not even going to bother. Four people are going to think about it. We're going to hold those four people to to their fence. One One might come to a settlement where we're worse off. Well, nine out of 10 times, we're better off and we have the machinery to do it. Mm-hmm. And so they're playing the numbers and the individual is uh, is not able to um, sort of be, uh, have a fair outcome in that circumstance. And that's, you know, it's not, that's a lot, happens, happens a lot more than I think, you know, Absolutely. we'd like to admit. I mean, I think that's a a fairly pervasive thing. And if you have capital, assigned to ARB that, then you will have fairer payouts uh, more regularly made across the board because there's there's a threat of consequence. That, and I think right. there's a real opportunity for active management here, right? That's the other thing. Um, this is a highly inefficient market. Mm-hmm. If you've got an if you've got an expert team that can assign probabilities of of payouts and assign expected you know sizes of payouts then you're in a position to to generate you know higher average returns through your well, and look 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 at how it's done now right in 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 class action suits literally a syndication of law firms comes together because they're fighting with the same issue you know a law firm may be able to take on two or three of these class action suits where a lot of it is pro bono cost initially and so they want to take on 20 but there aren't 20. And so 10 firms get together and they use the services of one another in order to defray the risks on any individual case. So they've got, you know, 10 cases that they're involved in, but they're involved at one tenth in all 10 cases and they're going to get some sort of payout. But that's super inefficient, right? That, you know, law firms aren't capital raising machines. These are, these are, you know, uh, entrepreneurs in the legal sense, looking at, at a return on capital and deciding whether they're going to do something or not do something. 
And uh, so, you know, again, capital provides the opportunity to arbitrage that, narrow that down and become more, have a more efficient legal system. Mm -hmm. yeah. The law I mean, firm itself has a high cost of capital. Yeah, Sorry, yeah that's, that's exactly right. Like you, can, you, can, you can invest in the trees or you can invest, you know, in the forest in that, you know, you can finance some of these larger cases, which, which have like, uh, you know, a million plaintiffs, each of which is owed, you know, $10 or $50 or whatever it is, right? For a, think about a data breach case, who, yeah. who, you know, capital people, one, right? Or Facebook or yeah. lots of, lots of those. But then you also think about securities class action. Securities class action is a neglected area, but really important, like really important to hold people to account. People who are mm -hmm. lying and hurting people uh, in, and you're Environmental right. Environmental uses. That, that's one of the big new areas that people are uh, really focused on. Like the environmental impact of what they're doing and did, did they take uh, you know, environment into account? That's now ingrained in board policy, right? You don't do that. You could be in breach of your fiduciary duties. You suffer a loss as a result of that. And that's, and that's a class action. So bottom line is it could be individual cases. It could be lawyers that are individually have a portfolio cases, or it could be all giant law firms that kind of come together. So it's, it is a big area. It is understated and it is an inefficient area in terms of the allocation of capital. So that's why these are, these are interesting areas given the risk reward and the payoff. And if you have, uh, the, you know, the unfortunate experience of going to law school like I did and, and, you, and you know about all these, all these different kinds of claims, then you can make a better assessment of what, what you think uh, should be the result. And all too often to the point uh, that Mike made earlier, the, the, uh, the objective of many of these institutional defendants is not necessarily to beat the case, it is to beat the man. Mm -hmm. And when, yeah, you, when you're in a, when you're in a situation like that, um, that's a pretty that's a pretty nasty place to to be. And it is a good place to think about it. Saying, "Hey, I'm doing a good thing. Judges agree, courts agree, uh, the UN agrees that we're doing things that matter for people. You don't want someone being fired and treated badly that suddenly just kind of walks away and finds another job because they're they're in distress. You actually want them to be able to." to get some compensation for what they did. And if you, and if you can do that and allocate capital accordingly, that, that is similar to, but even has a better payoff uh, sometimes than, than, you, than, well, it definitely has a better payoff than kind of traditional bonds. And it has kind of like a bond-like aspect with an, an, an equity option kicker in, embedded in that. So it is, it is kind of, uh, and it's an interesting play and it is a market that is still not developed because of, kind of the nature of the, the market, I think, that I don't think mm -hmm. it will ever be efficient. How, how do you think that you would deal with, I mean, the challenge is I would think that the law firms themselves would syndicate the really good stuff and uh, because they would have a high degree of confidence. Now, maybe maybe that's not true. So I'm you know, just throwing it out there for consideration. So, and then the stuff that's sort of B and C related, where they're not like quite sure. Let, let's let's get let's go to the investment guys for this stuff. I, I mean, maybe that's the same in oil and gas origination and reed origination too. I don't know. Well, you can get different types of insurance. Uh, you can get right. and then you get the financing. Uh, the real challenge is that if you have a real case, um, it can take you years to get there, mm -hmm. and so you kind of 
you need to explore all the different avenues. And it is often the case that it's not the distress of the plaintiff that comes forward. It's the distress of the lawyer <laughs> and right. they need, they need capital or think about having a portfolio of these, you know, pri private injury, uh, you know, personal injury type claims that, you know, that you know that there's a, there's a payout, but it's going to take some work and you're call it two, three years away from getting there. Um, but you're cash poor right now and you can't take on, you can't grow your business and you also can't really service your, your firm in the way you probably would want to. You can't, you can't grow your firm. You can't take on new cases. Uh, you can't hire new associates to help you. Uh, so it can be an important area for, for them on a business level as well as on a kind of case by case level, but it is a really inefficient area and it does provide, attractive uh, risk-adjusted returns historically it's been one of the very interesting uh, risk premium areas yeah it really resonates with me actually um any other um you know different types of strategies that that you think might be complementary to you know a portfolio that of esg private credit esg oriented um legal loans yeah I mean, there, there are complementary strategies. Like if you think longer going further out, uh, I, I think that you can have consistent with the strategy we discussed, like having like uh, ESG private equity is something to really think about carefully. Um, it, interestingly, private debt can lead to private equity <laughs> if you are investing at the right times. Yeah. If you're looking for kind of... Uh, opportunities to invest when you don't want to get into a bidding war with other private equity firms then coming in kind of like similar to like the oak tree model or, or other investors that will come in um, when they see a company is you know is, is challenged they can lend at higher rates because because it's obvious they have a they have some issue they need to tackle you give them the capital that they need to to turn the corner but if they don't turn the corner you're 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 happy uh, to kind of step into the shoes of management and plug it in, kind of a a private equity strategy from that perspective as well. So I, I think that that is a strong kind of equity kicker to some of these opportunities because even if they fail, and you are the senior creditor on this or the only creditor, and sometimes then you can end up really owning the company and really being the the equity holder coming out of that. And if you know how to implement the right strategy, like you tell them what the appropriate strategy is to do, you hope they do it. But if they don't, then then you get the opportunity to plug in your own management and, and do that uh, yourself. So I, I think that that's good optionality as well. Uh, what that does require from investors is to think about the liquidity needs and whether that that fits with what they want to do. But it, but it, 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 you know, from an investment perspective, it makes complete sense because the worst thing, you know, bad decisions in private equity typically are all made around uh, investments that are made in high valuations that don't end up paying off. And that those are the things that people remember and that cause long-term uh, lagging of their benchmarks or where they, where they just didn't perform well at all. So that that's something that, that navigates one of the key risks for private equity is to actually get access through kind of that, uh, that uh, private debt aspect. And, and there right. are great opportunities in, uh, in Canada for that because you'd, you'd want to invest in a company 
like I would view it like I'd want to invest in a company that I'd want to own, right? They may be dealing with a temporary setback and you hope that they make it and you hope they turn around. But if you don't, you're, you're okay with that, that in the sense that maybe you restructure, maybe you keep the management on and maybe you just take a different strategy going forward or you, you renegotiate in certain ways. So that's uh, an opportunity. So if you're a company and you are um, contemplating the need to raise debt and are interested in how to reconfigure your operations in order to comply with um, ESG objectives, then where can a company like that find you for guidance and potential capital? Sure. Well, they could uh, they can email me or they could just contact me on Twitter at resolution underscore ESG. I think is the, my details and my details are posted there. So I'm I'm happy to talk to to anyone. I I really think that there are a lot of companies that are great companies that just aren't getting the capital that they need. And if you are a kind of a traditional company and you want to make that turn towards ESG, uh, there's a real opportunity there too, as well. There are things you can do to transform your company, and it's and it's going to be important for you to think about how do you do that and. Uh, and we've definitely, I've, I've helped everyone from kind of miners do that, where we've had like rare earth metals and others that are, that actually have a really important use case. Like you can't build some of the turbines, some of the, some of the windmills yeah. without them. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so it is, you, 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 there are things you can do to, uh, to do that you can source different energy you can you can change your company in, in important ways and or just set targets as well that are that will help you meet those objectives and then and then uh, and then market that as well so that your cost of capital can can reduce and you can do well in the future given well, the I, new I think, regulations yeah and, and thinking about it from the standpoint of the amount of capital that is being set aside for these types of investments is growing at a fairly um, large rate. So this is an opportune time for companies to be thinking in this way in order to access capital markets in ways that maybe have not been uh, either quite so obvious or quite so differentiated. Yeah, I, I think that's right. That, that sometimes it can be implementing a new technology. Sometimes it has to do with your HR policy or what, what, what you're going to do. Other times it's just a slight strategic change. Uh, and then, but, but, the, but the truth is on some cases, there's no easy way around it. It's, it's, it's an investment you're going to have to think of. But I think that the investment uh, in this, this is a secular change. We are not going back to the way things were. And they're going to make it more and more difficult if you're not in tune with some of these ESG factors. So if anyone, if I can help anyone with that, um, I, I think it's great. I know that you're very thoughtful in this area, and I appreciate the opportunity to discuss all this with you. Um, but so great. Well, we continue to climb the learning curve with the assistance <laughs> of uh, of generous experts like yourself. So thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your story and your vision and helping us learn more about this timely theme. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Cue the music. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. 
If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.